Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is October 13th, 2022, and I'm joined as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about a piece that you wrote in The Hill uh, entitled Democrats Cannot Deny Biden the Nomination. So, you know, you and I have talked several times, I think, about uh, the, 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 the twin issues of the fact that even even most Democrats don't want to see Joe Biden <laughs> run again. Yes. And also the fact that there's precious little they can do about it. But your, your piece in the Hill actually comes at it from a, a different and more interesting angle. Yeah. One of the things, one of the questions I get really a lot these days is from somebody who will say, you know, the uh, uh, the economy is doing so badly. Uh, the president seems to be so unpopular. And in fact, he just seems to be. It just seems to be losing some mental acuity. Let's just put it like that. And so surely Democrats can't let him be the nominee again. And I'll respond typically along the lines of, well, the Democrats can't really stop him from being the nominee. And and that usually gets this response like, what? You mean you mean the Democratic Party cannot stop Joe Biden from running for re-election again in 2024? And I say, no, no, it really can't. And that's in large part because political parties these days really don't have the power that they used to or that people think they do have. And and as you know, this is actually a topic I'm quite fond of, this right. issue that, the, that for all of the I think grassroots sort of suspicions about like the establishment mm-hmm. and political establishment. The truth of the matter is right now is that both of our political parties are just extremely weak t- to the point of of impotence. And just so to to verify this, because not pe- many people have written on this at all. Right. I uh, I checked with the person who has a a former Democratic official who has an affiliation with one of the major think tanks. And I wrote him a note because he's been writing in some areas similar to this. And I just asked the question, here's my understanding. And he responded, he said, and I'm reading a quote, in today's world of media, no party has the ability to tell any candidate, let alone the sitting president of the U.S., that they can't run for reelection. The only way to affect that decision is through popular opinion, as when President Johnson decided not to run again in 1968 after seeking, seeing the lack of support he had in the New Hampshire primary. And so his point was, you really can't deny that person the, uh, the ability to be able to run for re-election. And the, this, the example that, that, that your contact there mentioned, Johnson, that, that wasn't the party stopping Johnson. That right. was Johnson realizing that he was, didn't have a chance. That's right. Yeah. He, that was Johnson realizing he just didn't get the turnout in New Hampshire that he thought he should have because he was being challenged by Senator Edward Kennedy as a and he was primarying uh, mm-hmm. Johnson. So that's part of the issue. But it hasn't always been that way. 
Uh, for decades, political parties were really largely want, run by those, you know, the political leaders, the people we called the bosses, mm-hmm. uh, the insiders, the power brokers, and so forth. We talk about smoke-filled rooms. Smoke-filled and all rooms, this kind of stuff, right. right. They often did it from the smo- those infamous smoke-filled rooms. Right. And they determined in most cases, especially at the state and local level, who the who the candidates were for various offices, but also to a large extent to the president for the presidential candidate. That began to change in the progressive area, progressive era, and that's considered in American history about 1900 to 1915. But increasingly, the uh, the rank and file party members were saying we we want to have a say in who is going to be our presidential nominee. So they started looking at that, and that's sort of where the primary process was born. Now, as you know, I love this topic because I think that I think the typical voter in, in either party think some, somehow that primaries are the way it's always been done. Right. They think primaries are the only way it can be done. And and they probably think primaries are like written into law somewhere, <laughs> you know, in the Constitution, that this is how you have to do it. But as you point out, I think primaries are a relatively recent innovation. Right. Clay Jenkinson writing for Governing Magazines, and I'm quoting now, the primary was designed to give people greater control over the selection of candidates in their party. It is a uniquely American innovation, which first rose in mod- to modern prominence in Wisconsin in 1905. And so the point he's trying to make is that this is just this is an American invention. It's, but it's not just an American invention. It's a progressive invention. Right. Exactly right. I mean, if, if you want to run for parliament in England, mm-hmm. uh, you have to ask the party. You, you have to get the party's approval right. to be on the ballot. You can't just say, well, I'm running, whether you like it or not. And so states increasingly sort of embraced this primary process, or in some cases caucus, and that became it became more common. But I'm, again, I'm quoting, primaries did not become the preeminent method of choosing political candidates until 1972, after the disastrous and riotous Democratic National Convention of 1968, the most disruptive year in the 20th century. And what he points out is that Hubert Humphrey came. He was the vice president of the United States. There were 14 states that had primaries by this time, by 1968. Hubert Humphrey didn't run in any of those primaries. Mm. And still, he comes to Chicago in 1968, where the Democratic Convention was being held, and he gets nominated as the presidential nominee for 1968. And for people who are old enough to remember, there were riots at the time. There were progressives out there rioting. It was, it was a major debacle from that standpoint. Yeah, the, the hard left activists within the Democratic Party did not want Humphrey. Right. They didn't want Humphrey right. because he had not been that opposed to the Vietnam War and other things. Mm. Uh, so anyway, they made even though he hadn't won one of the primaries, they made him the nominee. And so that created an internal movement where Democrats said, let's relook at this. They began adopting more primaries as a party. Republicans followed suit. And so now the primary process is, is that's the primary way we elect yeah. a presidential uh, candidate. Can I spend a minute or two trashing primaries? Sure. <laughs> because, because again, uh, primaries are a relatively recent innovation. And I don't know that the evidence would suggest that the move to primaries has actually improved candidate mm-hmm. quality. In fact, you know, I think on the party of which I remain a member, the Republican Party, I would argue that recently primaries have resulted in candidates of very poor quality. Mm-hmm. In fact, we did a podcast last week on this topic of poor quality candidates and, and the problem that that 
that that entails. And you know what? What we're what we've been talking about, Democrats. In 2016, I got a similar question about Donald Trump, which mm-hmm. was along the lines of, and this was early in the candidacy, you know, certainly, why isn't the Republican Party stopping Donald Trump from running? And my point was, how do you stop him? The Once you go to the primary process, the, the states control, it's a very decentralized process now. Mm-hmm. So the states control the primaries, the states set up their own rules, they differ somewhat significantly from state to state. But if you want to run in a presidential primary in the state of Texas or North Carolina or Massachusetts, you have to go see what the state requires. You have to then comply with what the state requires. And the Democratic Party in each of those states sort of make that work. Uh, but you've got to get your team on the ground. In some cases, you've got to get uh, petitions. In some cases, you've right. had to have a number. Your party had a number of votes in the last election. There's different things that do it. But if you're a Democrat and you want to get on the primary process, you go through the state process. And if you get on it, then people have a chance to vote for you as a Democratic a Democrat or Republican in those primaries. So in other words, as, lo- as long as you meet whatever rules have been set down, mm-hmm. you can run. Right. No, and, no, no party establishment can say, yeah, but this person's got all these personal problems and it's going to cause lots of problems. So we don't want them on our ballot. There's, you really can't do that so long as someone meets whatever rules happen to be laid down. Right. And occasionally you'll have a third party candidate or an independent candidate who, who's maybe running for national office and they'll uh, they may be qualified in several states, but not all the states. And that's one of the problems. And that's one of the criticisms from the third parties is that the states make it so hard for anybody else other than the two primary parties to be able to run a presidential candidate. So I want to keep bashing primaries for a second. But I think in in the in the in answering the question, sort of why can't the Democrats stop Biden from running for reelection? Mm-hmm. Your answer is because the parties are just so weak. Right. And then I think we ought to talk about we ought to talk about why the parties are so re- so weak. And, and I would argue that primaries are actually one of the factors why why parties are so weak, mm-hmm. because we've essentially democratized running for office. Exactly what we've done. And which is maybe not a surprise for the Democratic Party to do that. But it's a little bit of a surprise for the Republican Party to have just almost without thought adopted a progressive era idea Mm -hmm. that this is how we're going to choose candidates. Uh, We're just going to do it purely by majority vote, just whoever gets the most votes. And at no point in the process is there going to be anyone stepping, any experienced political players or experienced party officials who will step in and say, Look, everyone in this room knows that Mr. Mr. X is a better candidate than Mr. Y, so why don't we just have Mr. X be our nominee? Mm-hmm. And you just you can't do that anymore because of primaries. The other thing about primaries is that, you know, it's a whole it's a whole additional election cycle. Right. So it extends the election process. They're expensive. Uh, what you're doing is you're you're insisting that your candidates essentially run twice mm-hmm. and have to raise money for two different elections. Uh, and so, you know, primaries have maybe democratized something that would have been better off not being democratized. And and there's another problem here. If the let's say the, if the parties had said, all right, we're going to allow these two people to run in the primary 
or these three people to run in the primary. Then you might get somebody that the large majority of people actually support. But we saw this with Donald Trump. And when he stepped in in 2016, you had something like 16 or 17 other Republicans mm-hmm. running for the nomination. Well, a lot of these were good, capable people right. who have done who could have done a very good job as president. But they might have gotten since Donald Trump tended to get the major the plurality in most states. Um, not always, but in most of the time. But you could have had if you could have had thirty five percent for Donald Trump and sixty five percent voting for all these other candidates mm-hmm. who may have been fairly similar in in their ways, but they were not Donald Trump. Right. And so you end up with a situation in which you get, uh, in many cases, someone who is actually a minority a, a minority of that party supported, but because you had so many candidates. It weakened it down, and you could have something like that happening again in 2024. And, and I think everyone, everyone who pays attention to politics, understood that dynamic. That mm-hmm. when you've got 17 candidates, uh, that is a recipe for someone with only 28 percent support to mm-hmm. actually have the most support. But again, this goes to the point of the weakness of the parties. The party ought to be able to say, "No, we're not going to have 17 candidates." You know, a, a stronger party right. would do that. But if you think about it. How do we? How do the parties determine who actually ends up on the debate stage? Like polling results. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have we have really gone to an extreme degree of democratizing this process. It's like anybody that wants to run can run, so long as they meet these very basic rudimentary rules. Uh, and 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 we determine through the inexact science of polling who gets to be on the campaign stage, and we we we. Don't limit the number of candidates we have. And in in conjunction, I think I think generally the parties have taken the position that when the primaries are going on, the parties themselves tend to not want to pick one person over the other. Right. They tend to stay away from that right. until the until the voters have picked on the prime pick the uh, person who wins the primary, and so. Even to the point that you really don't have the party's ability to be able to say, in the primary, we like this person, or we like these two people and not these others. Yeah, you even have an ethic on the part of some Republican elected officials that, well, you know, I don't endorse them in primaries. It's, right. it's, it's, it's almost like, again, we've gone to this extreme degree of trying to be extremely democratic and sort of extremely fair. And again, uh, you know, I'm going to just shamelessly assert that the result of that process is we've gotten some really poor quality candidates mm-hmm. and that we could do with a little less grassroots democracy in our candidate selection process and maybe a little more uh, a little more return to sort of people who actually know what they're doing, having a hand in picking candidates. But to the point of this podcast, you can't do that because the parties are just so incredibly weak. And others have made this observation that essentially – you know, there's this pattern of all of our institutions being weakened and the political parties only being one. So what happens is a candidate can come in right now and just sort of hijack the party. Mm-hmm. And arguably, that's what Trump did. But you can easily picture, you can picture a celebrity, you can picture, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson deciding he's going to run for president and just has has never done anything in politics and has never given us any evidence that he's ever thought seriously about issues, but could just come along and just hijack a party. Mm-hmm. Or Oprah could come along and hijack a party. Or Kanye West could come along and hijack a party. And and the parties, because they're so weak, they just don't have the mechanism to say no. And you you think there's some other issues that of that represent the weakness of the party. Yeah, well, I I, I think that even though 
uh, even though I think most, I and most conservatives very much supported the Citizens United mm-hmm. decision, the Supreme Court decision. I think it's undeniable that Citizens United has actually helped to weaken the parties as well, further weaken the parties, because it's like the one thing the parties had some control over is the money. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we'll we're going to put party money behind this candidate, but not behind that candidate. But the parties don't control the money anymore because Citizens United essentially opened up just the ability to just almost without limit form PACs. And any almost anybody can set up a PAC for any candidate. Uh, donations are to PACs are largely unlimited. Uh, donations can be made to PACs by corporations and by all sorts of associations. And so you have a situation now where the amount of political money sloshing around outside the parties mm-hmm. is orders of magnitude larger than the amount that is going to the parties. So the because the parties don't have the control of the money anymore, it makes them almost irrelevant. And, you know, because there's so much money in politics right now, and this is apart from the PACs, but remember Barack, Barack Obama was the first person who said, I'm not going to take federal money mm-hmm. In once he has the nomination, which usually because that federal money, when you had the nomination, put certain restrictions on what you could and couldn't do. He said, I'm not taking the federal money because there's just so much money out there. Mm-hmm. And so that freed him up to be able to do a number of other things. You know, Barack Obama, even though he served for eight years, you know, was elected and reelected. Um, Barack Obama is another example, I think. Uh, either for better or for worse, of a situation where everyone in the Democratic Party just assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, and Hillary had control of the superdelegates, you know, within the Democratic Party. But a a one-term senator who I don't think he actually even finished his first Senate term, Mm -hmm. uh, a one-term senator was able to come along and basically just become the nominee. Now, in Barack Obama's case, it was successful. He Mm -hmm. didn't lose the election. He won the election. Right. Uh, but it's still an example of, I think, the weakness of political parties. Now, now, if you really, really believe in sort of, you know, that the grassroots ought to control everything, you see that as a feature, not a bug. You see that as a feature that essentially an outsider with very little experience could come along and, t- and, and wrest the nomination from the obvious candidate. I guess the question is, how often does it turn out that way? <laughs> you know, and I think more often than not. When you have that kind of candidate, uh, you you know take the nomination from a more established, a more experienced potential nominee. You end up with somebody who who generally loses the general election, not wins the general election. And so the bizarre thing of what we're talking about, the bizarre result, looking at twenty twenty four, the majority of Democrats now, I think roughly seventy two, seventy four percent, say they don't want Biden running again. Mm-hmm. But he's already said he sort of implied to some publicly and told certain people privately he's running in twenty twenty four. You have Donald Trump, who I was I was just I was just going to bring up Trump as a, as an as a, as an example of the same thing, right? right? Because you've you've even got people who pretty much liked what happened during mm-hmm. the Trump years. But it would still look at that and say, yeah, but, you know, he, he comes with so much baggage, we right. could probably do better. Probably do better. They'd rather him. he not run, but are powerless to stop it. And so if both of them get in, you could have this situation where you have Joe Biden running for reelection against Donald Trump. 
where the major the large majority of people in both parties don't really want either one of them, right. and yet they're stuck with them because of the weakness of the parties. And we're in this odd situation, like with Trump, you've got you've got people who are, who are were hoping he would be impeached. I mean, when I say people, I mean like Republicans mm-hmm. who were hoping he would be impeached because that would make it impossible for him to run. And who now are, are like secretly hoping that he would be found guilty, you know, convicted of a felony or something mm-hmm. to pre- prevent, prevent him from running. And the point is that ki- that kind of thing ought not be necessary. It ought be that parties have enough strength to say, oh, we don't want you carrying our flag in the election. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's our flag. And we don't want you. We choose to not allow you to carry our flag in the election, but they just don't have the power to do it. Well, we would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org. You can sign up there with your email address if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or Spotify or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. <music>